I want to call your attention this afternoon to Psalm 38. We've just sung a hymn that is based upon this psalm. And now we want to look at it together and endeavor to see our Lord Jesus Christ here in this psalm. A psalm of David to bring to remembrance. O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. For thine arrows stick fast in me, and thy hand presseth me sore. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger, neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. For mine iniquities are gone over mine head, As a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. I am troubled, I am bowed down greatly, I go mourning all the day long. For my loins are filled with a loathsome disease, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and sore broken. I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before thee, and my groaning is not hid from thee. My heart panteth, my strength faileth me. As for the light of mine eyes, it also is gone from me. My lovers and my friends stand aloof from my sore, and my kinsmen stand afar off. They also that seek after my life lay snares for me, and they that seek my hurt speak mischievous things, And imagine deceits all the day long. But I as a deaf man heard not. And I was as a dumb man that openeth not his mouth. Thus I was as a man that heareth not. And in whose mouth are no reproofs. For in thee, O Lord, do I hope. Thou wilt hear, O Lord my God. For I said, hear me, lest otherwise they should rejoice over me. When my foot slippeth, they magnify themselves against me. I am ready to halt, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I will declare mine iniquity, I will be sorry for my sin. But mine enemies are lively, and they are strong, and they that hate me wrongfully are multiplied. They also that render evil for good are mine adversaries, because I follow the thing that good is. Forsake me not, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. May God bless the reading of Psalm 38. Samuel Pierce calls this one of the Passion Psalms. It is one in which... Christ is so clearly set forth, it is more difficult to see David here than to see Christ. But certainly Christ is able to sympathize with David in his afflictions, and he is able to sympathize with us in our afflictions because he himself has been afflicted. And so we want to look at this psalm and see our Savior here 
today, I am increasingly convinced that the Lord Jesus is in these songs of the Old Testament uh, more and more as we go along, more than I ever thought before. In the Psalms, I remind you, we get a window into the mind and the thoughts of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't get that so much in the four Gospels, in the New Testament. In the four Gospels, we get his actions, we get his words, but very little about his own inward thoughts and his communications with the Father. That is what we get in the book of Psalms. And so in the opening verses, about uh, to verse 10, we see the wrath of God in view. Verse 1 says, O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. This is almost verbatim what we have in Psalm 6, verse 1. These two psalms open in the same way. The suffering of Christ on the cross under the wrath of God is undoubtedly revealed in the psalms. Somehow along the way, several years ago, I was challenged, and I don't remember exactly by whom, uh, to see any New Testament reference that speaks of the Father's wrath being poured out upon the Son. And I think someone was challenging that concept, saying you know, that justice was satisfied and everything necessary for our salvation was accomplished there on the cross indeed. But where do we specifically read that the Son became the object of the Father's wrath when he's really the object of the Father's love? Well, I think we have the answer here in the book of Psalms. The Father's wrath or the wrath of the Lord is mentioned again and again in these psalms and inasmuch as we see Christ in his suffering in these psalms we see it is the father's wrath that was poured out upon him he who was and is and always shall be the object of the father's love experienced that outpouring of wrath in the satisfying of divine justice. Verse 2, For thine arrows stick fast in me, and thy hand presseth me sore. What was most painful to Christ on the cross was knowing that the source of his suffering was not just man on earth, but the Father in heaven. There was a heavenly hand behind all of the wicked hands of men. Thy hand 
oppresseth me sore. Verse 3, there's no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger. Neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. He speaks of his flesh and bones, which of course reminds us of his broken body. Broken with a whip and with thorns and with nails and with a spear. The verse closes with this phrase, because of my sin. It was his sin in as much as ours was imputed to him. And he assumed it as our surety, as our substitute, as our sin bearer. Again, Samuel Pierce is my main helper in this kind of study here in the Psalms. He says, Christ calls the sins of his people his. They were so, not by any acts of omission or commission, that is, on the part of Christ. But they were his because he was responsible for them at the bar of justice, or at the bar of law and justice, as the undertaker for his people, end quote. He undertook our sins. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own, the hymn writer says. A passage that might be helpful to remember is in the book of Hebrews chapter 9 where it speaks of Christ coming into the world and appearing to, uh, to put away or making an appearance in this world in his incarnation to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and as it is appointed unto men once to die but after this the judgment so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And the the wording here is so marvelous and it's so precise. He appears the first time as a sin bearer and dies in the place of sinners. When he comes the second time, he will appear without sin, it says. Without sin. In his first coming, we might say, he appeared with sin. Not of his own doing. Committing or omitting. But because he assumed the sins of his people. Well, it's that first coming that's in view here. When he speaks of no rest in his bones because of his sin. Verse 4, mine iniquities are gone over mine head as a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. He was overwhelmed with the weight and the responsibility of our sin when it was put upon him. It was a heavy burden due to the quantity and the quality of our sins. Andrew Bonner commenting on this says, 
he was weary of having our leprosy appearing on his spotless person. Well, in view of the leprosy as a figure of sin and so on, that's a very illustrative statement. He was weary of having our leprosy appearing on his spotless person. Verse 5, my wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. Well, he was wounded for our transgressions, for our foolishness. But again, he calls it his foolishness or his sin. His taste of death went against all that was natural to him. The imputation of our sins to him and his suffering, the punishment for them, was against all that was natural to him in his sinless, perfect nature. And his wounds that were open from which blood flowed were an odious smell. Death itself was antithetical to everything that was natural to him who is the prince of life. Verse 6, he says, I'm troubled. I'm bowed down greatly. I'm humbled. I go mourning all the day long. He said again and again in the Gospel of John that his soul was troubled. We see it in chapter 11 at the grave of Lazarus where it says his spirit was troubled. We see it in John chapter 12 during the Feast of Passover during that week. Now is my soul troubled. We see it in John 13 in the upper room where he is with the disciples and he says he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Oh, the trouble of his soul. I am troubled. And yet in that same upper room discourse he could say to the eleven let not your heart be troubled he took our troubles he was troubled for us he bore our troubles so that we would not have to bear them surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows says Isaiah 53 We see his soul especially troubled in Gethsemane when our sin was put upon him. And if we have to pinpoint one specific time and place where sin, your sin and mine, Christian friend, was credited to him and he felt the weight of it and and the burden of it upon him, it was in Gethsemane. Bowed down, humbled, mourning, strong crying and tears, Hebrews calls it. His whole human frame was affected. He felt the pain of our sin in in the depths of his sinless being. And he describes that poetically in verse 7. 
For my loins are filled with a loathsome disease and there's no soundness in my flesh. He felt like a sinner through and through. Verse 8, I am feeble and sore broken. I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. Feeble. There's this phrase in 1 Corinthians 13.4 that is just, sometimes it's, it's hard to read. It says that he was crucified through weakness. He is the omnipotent God, yet as man, he was crucified through weakness. And that's spoken of here. He's a, he's a sorely broken man. He roars, cries from the depths of his heart. We see those sayings on the cross spoken with such difficulty in his dying hours. His human nature was sustained only by his divine nature until his suffering was finished. Verse 9. Lord, all my desire is before thee, and my groaning is not hid from thee. He was conscious of the omnipresence of the Father. He knows that the Father is near. He knows that the Father is observing, not only observing, but is putting him to grief. And yet the heart of the Son of God in his dying hours was a true and sincere and faithful, loyal heart. His, he could say, my desire is before thee. Though the Father did not come to his aid, and instead he tastes the Father's wrath, his own conscience bore witness of the purity of his own heart. He could say, Father, you know my suffering. You know all my pain. Yet my heart is not turned against you. My heart rather is toward you. And going on in verse 10, My heart panteth, my strength faileth me. As for the light of mine eyes, it also is gone from me. Oh, what holy ground this is. The one who died to save us and whose, in whose death is salvation was utterly worn out, spent, exhausted. His strength failed him. Yes, crucified through weakness. In those last three hours on the cross, there was darkness without and darkness within. As for the light of mine eyes, it also is gone from me. Verse 11, my lovers and my friends stand aloof from my sore and my kinsmen stand afar off. They all forsook him and fled. Matthew 26, 56 tells us at the time of his arrest, 
The only ones that are even mentioned in any proximity to the cross are his mother Mary and the Apostle John. And there's some question as to even how long they remained there. Jesus knows all about loneliness. You know, I'm seeing studies about, especially post COVID lockdown and with people working from home and so on more and more, that loneliness is an epidemic uh, in our day. More and more people have no real friends. Well, listen, if, if you find yourself to some degree in that situation, remember this, Jesus understands. Jesus knows all about loneliness as he died alone, forsaken by his Father in heaven and his friends on earth. Now here in verse 11, the wrath of man comes to be in view. He speaks in verse 12 of the conspiracy against him. They also that seek after my life lay snares for me. And they that seek my hurt speak mischievous things and imagine deceits all the day long. You can just imagine the the secret meetings during uh, his public ministry, but especially intensifying during Passion Week as the priests and uh, Pharisees and scribes and elders and the members of the court meet together again and again, plotting how they can take him how they can arrest him away from the multitudes, how they can put him to death without getting in trouble for it themselves, laying snares, seeking his hurt, dreaming up their deceitfulness. What will we do if Pilate does this? What will we do if Herod does that? And of course, Judas is carried enters the conspiracy and they're happy to have his help. And all the while, Jesus says nothing. I'm as a deaf man. He says, verse 13, I as a deaf man heard not and I was as a dumb man that openeth not his mouth. Thus I was as a man that heareth not and in whose mouth are no reproofs. Reminds us of Isaiah 53 once again. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. And it's striking to see that when he could have brought evidence to his defense and to exculpate himself, he doesn't do so. He remains silent before Caiaphas. He only speaks when they put him under oath and require him to speak. 
doesn't say a word to Herod, as far as we can tell. Not a solitary word. And then doesn't give anything in way of defense to Pilate, except to answer the questions that Pilate puts to him directly. The silence of Christ in that in those uh, hours is just an amazing thing and there's a number of lessons to learn from it the only thing i'll say here this afternoon is this is surely part of his dying as a sinner we read in romans 1 that Before God, every mouth is stopped. Every mouth is silenced. There's no defense. There's no argument. We're guilty before God. We have nothing to say. And our Lord Jesus Christ put himself in that position as our sin bearer, as our surety. Peter speaks of how that he gave no reproofs. He didn't revile back to those who reviled him and so on as it says here in the end of verse 14 in his mouth there were no reproofs he speaks then in verse 15 of his waiting on the father for in thee O lord do i hope thou wilt hear O lord my god and you notice perhaps in the margin of your bible for the word hope has the word wait And for the word hear, it has the word answer. Well, he's waiting on the Father to answer. He's patiently suffering while he waits upon the Father for his deliverance. He knows that when the Father's justice is satisfied, his sufferings will come to an end. And so when he breathed out his last breath, he died at peace, knowing he had accomplished his purpose, and he commits his spirit into the hands of the Father. And the Father delivered him not from the cross, but he delivered him from the grave by way of resurrection. This is the joy that was set before him. This is what he hoped in. And waited for. And I can't help but notice here in verse 15 where he speaks of, O Lord, my God. And that little word, my, is such a big word, really. It speaks of his relationship to the Father. His covenant relationship in which In the economy of redemption, he is humbled. He renders perfect obedience. He suffers death. He's raised up from the dead and is exalted to the heights. That's all hinted at in a way when he calls God, my God, my God. And happier we if we can Call God my God in Christ. Verse 16, For I said, Hear me, lest otherwise they should rejoice over me. 
When my foot slippeth, they magnify themselves against me. His enemies saw his followers forsake him. They saw his his influence diminished. They were able to turn the, the, the opinion of the crowds against him so that they were calling for his crucifixion. This is the, the slipping of his foot, we might say, toward death and toward the grave. And they rejoiced. This was just according to their plan and scheme. And Christ cannot bear the thought that these wicked enemies should be victorious. Hear me, lest otherwise they should rejoice over me. When my foot slippeth, they magnify themselves against me. I am ready to halt, and my sorrow is continually before me. Every human faculty of his was suffering. Mr. Pierce says, it brought down the curse due to the sins of his people, both on his body and mind. The mental suffering of the cross is is unimaginable. It was continually before him, he says. And as far as his halting is concerned, perhaps we should see in that his difficulty in carrying the cross to Golgotha, the place of crucifixion. And Simon of Cyrene was enlisted to help, as you recall. Then verse 18 is another one of these verses that can only make sense in the mouth of Christ inasmuch as he is the the surety for our sins. For I will declare mine iniquity. I will be sorry for my sin. He felt it as if it were his very own. But mine enemies, verse 19, are lively and they are strong. Oh, what a contrast. Jesus is crucified through weakness and he's dying, but they are alive and well. They that hate me wrongfully are multiplied. They have plenty of helpers. I'm reduced to utter loneliness. There was no reason for their hatred against him. They hated him wrongfully. Inasmuch as he was not personally a sinner and had done nothing but good unto his enemies. They had no knowledge, no no idea that he was dying as a substitute for others. They hated him wrongfully because he had no sin of his own. All he had shown these enemies was goodness. Verse 20, they also that render evil for good are mine adversaries because I follow the thing that good is. He was good even to his enemies. He fed them. He healed them. And his own sinlessness was a source of of anger and envy to them. 
And I think it's especially worthy to note here that though we have seen him speak of my sin in verse uh, verse 3 and verse 5 and verse 18, nevertheless, here in verse 20, he speaks as one who is sinless, who has done good, who has followed good faithfully. Yes, this, this is much more fitting for Christ than for David, isn't it? Christ's goodness was absolute. David's goodness was only relative. Well, the psalm concludes with these two verses. Forsake me not, O Lord. Here's a plea for his presence. Reminds us of, in a way, of Psalm 22. Let's go ahead and read these first. Forsake me not, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. And you'll notice some very parallel terms here in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength, haste thee to help me. Here are the pleas for help from the Son in his dying hours. If we understand anything from this, we understand that the presence of the Father and the knowledge of his smile enabled Christ to face anything. It it made everything right. If he could but see the Father's smiling face. But the sight of a frowning Father was unbearable. It made everything dark. And the son pleads for that smiling face. And again, the only way that I can understand this and and explain it at all is to say that the, the, the substance of what Christ is asking for here is given in three days when he rose from the dead triumphant and glorious. And it was that joy that he anticipated in the resurrection that enabled him to bear the cross and to suffer its shame and pain. Our Lord Jesus Christ is able to sympathize with us in all of our suffering because he has suffered 
We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you a troubled saint today? Perhaps afflicted under spiritual assault, perhaps doubting and afraid. You sense your own weakness and being surrounded by enemies who are hoping that you will fall and they want you to bring shame on the name of Christ because they are convicted by the holy life that you live. My friend, if that's you today, here's a comforter. Here is one who knows exactly what you face. On the other hand, I hope it's not the case, but if there's a careless soul taking too much for granted, let me just say this. How can we take so lightly our sin which caused Christ such deep grief? You read read Psalm 38 and it's the grief of our sins that that he feels the overwhelming weight of. If it cost him such grief, it ought to grieve us. We should at least not take our sin lightly and not pursue a course of sin knowingly and willfully. Well, one last thing to point out here. And that's the the, uh, opening title of the psalm. A psalm of David to bring to remembrance. We have something of a parallel purpose then in this psalm and in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Both bring to our remembrance the suffering and death of our dear Savior. And so let us remember him as we look at this psalm and as we partake of this ordinance.